0: One, two, three,
1: four. You are listening to Skylet the skylight books podcast skylight books is a general interest bookstore in the los Feliz neighborhood in los angeles you can shop with us from 10 a.m to 10 p.m or visit us online 24 7 at skylightbooks.com follow along at skylight books instagram and twitter you can subscribe to the podcast on podbean itunes and spotify thank you for listening and now on to the episode
0: Okay, hello listeners, and welcome to Hand Sell, a Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're returning to our regular business hours at the store, so by the time this episode airs, we will be open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We're asking unvaccinated customers to continue wearing masks, but if you're vaccinated, you can come in all barefaced. Uh, and we're still offering online shopping and curbside pickup through www.skylightbooks.com. You can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, which is crowdcast.io skylightbooks.com. Now, on to the show. Uh, I'm joined today by my pal and award-winning translator, Emma Ramadan, who recently translated the novel In Concrete by Ann Guretta for Deep Vellum. She's a translator of poetry and prose from France, the Middle East, and North Africa, and the recipient of a Fulbright, a National Endowment of the Arts Translation Fellowship and the 2018 Albertine Prize. And she just won a Penn Award for her translation of a Tys novel, A Country for Dying. She's based in Providence, Rhode Island, where she co-owns Riff's Riff Raff Bookstore and Bar. How are you today, Emma?
1: I'm great, Mike, how are you today?
0: I'm doing well, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Uh, Emma's going to read a bit from In Concrete, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit and talk about her work as a translator and bookstore slash bar owner, and that'll be that. Um, So are you ready to read, Emma?
1: I am ready to read. I'll just give a quick bit of context. Um, In Concrete by Ann Greta is a book about uh, the narrator and their sister and their father who get up to all kinds of wild antics and hijinks, um, around a concrete mixer and their desperate desire to modernize everything. And so in this part that I'm going to read from, it's in the second chapter and the narrator is explaining how kind of she and her, her family have gotten involved in, in all of this stuff. So. Let me start over. Very early in life, his and ours, he told us that he felt an inclination to care for all those paralytic rattle traps, aphonic radios, and frenetic washing machines. He wanted to save them. And he never stopped. He never gave up. Not even when faced with cases that seemed mechanically, humanly, and electrically hopeless. The concrete mixer is a living example of our father's vocation. I have to mention something very important regarding our management of the Reserve Corp and also our family's faith, which is that our machines wear out quickly, more quickly, obviously, than they would in the hands of wusses. Since refurbishing, fine and refined tuning and ball fiddling is not our father's style. We realized pretty quickly, my little sis and I, that the concrete mixer, robust as it was, would give out on us and bite the rust one of these days, like all the rest, like the lawnmower, the washing machine, the drill, the chainsaw, and so on and so forth. My little sis diagnosed the ailment. It started out like Parkinson's or mad cow disease. When the concrete mixer concreted, it would go all spastic, its welded steel legs shaking and rattling, its gear teeth chattering. My little sis climbed up on my shoulders to examine it one morning after our father had gone into town to replenish our Portland supply. I'll summarize the etiology of the illness and its course as elucidated by Poulet that very night in our bed. I'm getting ahead of myself again. First, I have to explain why my little sis' nickname was Poulette and why we shared a bed. So, it's not that we didn't have enough furniture, but in the still ancient times I'm talking about, she would often invite me to sleep in her bed. I thought at first that it was because I meant something to her and that she loved me, in a way. Later, when we'd finished modernizing from the ground up and we had central heating in the house, she stopped inviting me. When I asked why, she gave me a reason so rational I couldn't hold it against her, sad as it made me. Poulette was sensitive to the cold because she had very long legs, which are an asset in certain situations. For example, they give her a fearsome reach on the field or when kicking balls, but from a thermal point of view, they're not very efficient. By the time blood arrives to her distant extremities, it's already cooled off. If she'd been squat like me, she would never have been cold. So it was mutually beneficial, a rational division of labor according to our innate advantages. I benefited from her long limbs, she benefited from my caloric efficiency. Now that part of the story's been nailed down, at least half nailed, I'll hammer home the rest later. But even half nailed, things generally hold together pretty well. That's what our father says anyway. There's wiggle room, he says, there's redundancy. We leave that for the finishing touches. Often he's not wrong. Things vibrate, wobble, lean, withstand gravity by the skin of their teeth, but we still have some doors, some shelves, and some pipes that haven't collapsed. I'll bet it's the same for you. Back to the pathology, lickety split. My father, who was always in a rush to finish and so hated the finishing touches, the fine tunings, the pussy footing, the wussy buffing, and the finitude of all things, our father would often neglect to rinse the mixer thoroughly after it was done serving up its concrete. Meaning, incidental residues would get stuck in the cog's teeth. Next time around, the poor thing would rattle as it chewed, ground, and rechewed between pinion and crowned wheel the gravels of yester gear and the remnants of slabs past. From all that crushing rumination of the past, it'd start to rattle and wheeze. That's what wore out the heart of our concrete mixer. Until the fatal day, the engine shuffled off its mortar mortar coil. That happened the exact same day little sis fell into concrete, so to speak. But I have to clarify so as to avoid any misunderstanding or slanderous insinuation. First off, I have to make clear that the concrete mixer really suffered that day. Next, what happened to my little sis is not the concrete mixer's fault at all. It's no one's fault. Or if anything is to blame, the only thing we can blame is time. Yeah, it's time's fault. It was that very day and on that very occasion that I understood something crucial, something of which I had no inkling previously. I understood that, as those English sissies say, it's all a bladder of time.
0: Thank you, Emma. Can you talk about uh, the last little, little uh, clause there it's a bladder of time uh I'm kind of I just read Sphinx and so I'm kind of um amazed at like the difference between the narrator's tone and this compared to Sphinx where it's so intellectual and highbrow and this is it seems like a lot more playful
1: yeah so I guess I didn't mention before I started reading that the narrator of this book is a 12 year old and um I, well, I'm just gonna say it because it's impossible to talk about otherwise. It's a 12 year old girl and you don't find out that she's a girl until the very end of the book. But, um, and in that way, it's sort of similar to Sphinx in that there's sort of a gen, there's no gender markers for the narrator throughout this book. But, um, it's it's all very homophonic in uh in french as in it's sort of written the way the words sound as opposed to the way you would properly write words or slang or text message speak it's very very um auditory language and so there's in in english it was really hard to imitate that and so there is a lot of in my translation, where I kind of lost some of that aspect of the language, because in English, sometimes it can tend to look like slang or look like text speak, things like that, which is what I didn't want. I have at every place I could put it in. I have plays on words. I have little jokes. I have little innuendos. I have all these other aspects of the narrator's personality that I was able to put in, in certain places to kind of balance out the personality in English and, and keep it sort of consistent with the personality of the narrator in the French. And so as I was reading, I wanted to read this part because there are a lot of those little places. There's um, so on and so forth, there's fine and refined tuning, there's um, modernizing instead of modernizing, there's... Um, uh, Yester gear, mortar coil, all of that stuff. And then all a bladder of time was something that was, it caused this like big issue in my translation because in the French, there's a whole chapter where it, there's a joke going on about how the father likes to really push the family on road trips and see how far they can make it without stopping for gas and also without stopping to go to the bathroom. Um, and so there's this like, you know, either we were going to give out and piss our pants or the car was going to break down and it was always this competition to see what was going to happen first. And in the French, the chapter is called le temps, c'est l'essence, which is, which translates to time is of the essence, but in French, essence means gasoline. And so there's like this really nice play on words that spans between French and English that her French readers, Greta's French readers would readily understand And I was like pulling my hair out for over a year over this part of like, what am I going to do? And I remember there was a day when I was just sitting in riffraff and the editor of the book was sitting with me and he was visiting Providence. And I suddenly was like, I got it, all a bladder of time. And he was like, "But there's no gasoline in there." And I was like, "Yeah, but her title doesn't have the bladder mentioned in there and the p- the piss mentioned in there. So like, I've got two things. She's got two things. It's all good." And I was so thrilled about it and so proud of it. And maybe other people are listening to this, like, "Why? Like, not a big deal. I could have done better. Whatever." But I personally am very proud of that.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty good.
1: Oh, uh, this- I got pretty good from mike jeffrey so uh
0: i you know when we before we started this i wanted to ask you about the word jabroni which also comes in there um it just sounds like this seems like a fun book for taking liberties obviously it's not fun when you know you're spending a year trying to come up with something that conveys that meaning but was it sort of fun to translate at times and like play with language like this
1: yeah, it was, it was really stressful, but also really fun. And, um, I think the the point of this book is that it's supposed to make readers laugh. It's supposed to be fun to read. It's like linguistically very intricate, you know, it's not, it's, it's more, uh, Smart humor than it is slapstick humor, but there's also slapstick humor in here. I mean, the whole point of this book is that the the younger sister gets entirely encased in concrete, and so the her older sister is narrating their life story as they're waiting for their father to bring help to get her sister unencased in concrete. And so there is this like big slapstick element, and then there is this very intricate wordplay going on. And and it's not just wordplay for the sake of wordplay. It's there's a lot of kind of making fun of and satirizing the different ways that very masculine and homophobic and all these other kinds of like really problematic uh, ways of speaking kind of infiltrate a young child's way of speaking as they're kind of learning the world and listening to the people around them. And then she is sort of distorting all of these problematic modes of language through her misspellings, through her innuendos, through her accidental plays on words, you know, like she as the narrator is not aware that she is punning, that she is making these funny innuendos. Uh, But as the author, the author is sort of using the narrator's funny slip ups to kind of make a bigger point and to kind of satirize something bigger. And I was personally very thrilled that in this book, I mean, the, the phrase there, the sisters are at like battling this other group of kids from, from the the neighborhood and they're like fully waging war. And, you know, it's described, this guy has been a huge bully in the neighborhood and the narrator described him as a jaundiced jabroni. And it's just like, I was like, you know what, this is perfect. It's gonna make people laugh. And that's the whole point of of her you know, uses of language here. It's to make people laugh. And then also it fit into my long con, which was I got into the translation game specifically to put the word jabroni in the books that I translate. And I finally achieved my goal so I can quit translating now.
0: There you go, you're done. You're done with the jabroni, it's finished. <laughs> Did you feel that you were, um like kind of up for the task of like, you mentioned like the gender reveal or how the narrator in this book doesn't, her gender is not revealed until late after Sphinx where that was such, seemed like such a difficult task of, that's a genderless love story. So the narrator and their beloved A, neither of them are assigned pronouns the entire book. And that seemed like it'd be, oh, I I have a line actually here from the introduction. I wanna know if you agree with it. Uh, if Garetta's composition of Sphinx was a high-wire act, then Emma Ramadan's task as translator is akin to one tightrope walker mimicking the high-wire act of a second walker on a steeply diverging tightrope while also doing a handstand. Um,
1: um, I, I think I know. I think it's my friend Chris Clark who wrote that um, in a review, which was a really flattering way of describing what was a very torturous process. I think I, I like that line because often people would say things to me like, oh, well, you know, avoiding gender and gendered language in English is so much easier than in French. It's like, well, maybe if I were writing a book from scratch in English, that would be the case. But I am bound to write to translate what is already on the page. And of course, because French works differently than English, it's like exactly the methods anne Goretta used and the sentence structures that she used. And you know, all of these things that she used were the places where I, I, English calls for gender markers. And so I think the idea of this, like the person on the tightrope walk also doing a handstand, it's because I not only have to avoid English or gendered language in English, but I still have to be mimicking what Ann Garetta is doing and I can't use what English necessarily has to offer in terms of avoiding or gender neutral language because I have to go off of what she already wrote. Um, in, in Concrete it only came up in one place uh, because it's first person and there's not a lot of the other characters do have gender markers right so it didn't come up as much there was just one place where um, the narrator is talking about her various nicknames that she's given, and one of them in English becomes fang hole. And then I had something like, beware of teeth down there or something, I th- or that might be what we left in in the English. Um, but originally it had sounded more explicitly like, she's, oh, I, I had translated it as beware, she's got teeth down there, uh, like fangs in her hole kind of thing. Um, and Ann Garetta was like, can we change this to beware of teeth down there, to not give her the word she in, in, this, in, in the beginning of the book? Like, I want to wait until the, until the end. Um, so that was kind of the only place it really came up. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny to think about having to be mindful of that on top of everything else going on. I thought, when I translated Sphinx, I was like, this is the hardest thing I'll ever translate. And then I translated this and I'm like, oh my God, I want to translate Sphinx again
0: you think that you thought this was harder because of the word
1: way harder really yeah way harder i mean sphinx was the first book i ever translated and the register was really difficult to nail down the voice the vocabulary so it was different it was difficult in different ways but at a certain point like when you get a handle on it and when you learn what strategies you're going to use to avoid gender markers you can kind of keep you fall into a rhythm. In Concrete it was like every fucking, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every single paragraph had some kind of play on words or some kind of linguistic slip going on that I needed to pay attention to. That, and like jokes that spanned multiple chapters or plays on words that spanned multiple languages. And again, it's like I have to, I have to figure out how to do it in English. And I'm not going to be able to use certain things that she used. And then I have to figure out, okay, so anytime there's a there's a way to insert a play on words, I'm going to do it. But it has to also fit the narrator's style and way of speaking. And then I also have to make sure I'm like paying attention to the bigger project. I don't know. It was a lot. It was, it felt so much more Difficult to get through because it was like there was an obstacle in in every paragraph and sometimes in every line
0: Right, right. And are you, are you the only person who's translated and Goretta into English?
1: Uh, I am, Don't think I'm the only person who has translated her into English I know at least like in uh, words without borders had an issue on the Olipo and someone else translated a piece of hers And then I I know that there are other people who have translated shorter things of hers and maybe they haven't been published. Um, So I know there are like other people interested in her, but I think I'm the only trans, I know I'm the only translator who has translated a full-length work of ants into English.
0: Because you have an appetite for this specific form of difficulty?
1: I have an appetite for constructing self-made prisons um, and then complaining about them. So... (laughs)
0: No. <laughs> um, um,
1: yeah, no. I, I really love what Anne does. I really love working on her books. They are so difficult, but then I feel so proud to have done them. So, yeah.
0: Do you like, um, have you translated anyone who's like not alive or have all the projects you've been done been uh, living writers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've translated Marguerite Dross, who's oh right, not alive. I've translated... Um, uh, Ahmed Buonani, who's also no longer with us. Um, I'm looking at the rest of the books on the shelf. I think everyone else has been a living author. Yeah.
0: And do, do you like working with the living? <laughs> you know, get, you get their feedback, I assume, a little bit. I I'm, imagine there's, like, different levels of involvement with the uh, living writers in your translations.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so... T- dependent on the book and the author and their preferences and then also the kinds of relationships that can come out of it. I mean, I had a very, very involved process with Anne Garetta on all three of the books that are in different ways on all three of the books that I've translated for her or with her, of her. Um, Sphinx, we met up in Paris got like it was like this little routine we had where i was doing my masters in paris and she was there some of the time so she would take me out to these really lovely dinners and we would eat steak and drink red wine and she would talk to me about sphinx more like generally mm-hmm. she read a couple of chapters and then she sort of was no longer involved for the rest of it with not one day she was way more involved and then within concrete i translated and i like worked on it a ton over way more time than I was supposed to. And then I when it was like I felt really good about it, I sent it to her and she tore it apart. No, that's not what happened. But she like had a lot of feedback and then we ended up doing a lot of zooms during the pandemic where we would like if there were certain jokes that weren't quite working or if I had missed some like bigger reference to something, we would kind of go back and forth and figure out solutions in those places. Um, I worked pretty closely with. Or I didn't work very closely with Please Matusant, but we did a little tour together. Same with um Javid Java I didn't have any contact at all with some of the authors I've worked with. So like I had no contact with Virginie Despentes, who's like way too famous to talk to me. Um, but she had to like approve my sample. And then I didn't really have any contact with Markus Malt. I didn't have any real contact with Maryam Alary, but then like Abdel I didn't really work with him on the translation, but we have become friends and I have seen him a lot over the years and we'll see him when I go to Paris in a few weeks. Um, And then like Fred Forte, who's another author I've translated, um, he and I, like every time I'm in Paris, we hang out, you know, so it's like different degrees of Some writers I will become close to, some writers I won't become close to, but we'll like work together on things. And then some writers I'll have no contact with. And then also like Ahmed Bonani is no longer alive, but I was doing my Fulbright on his work. And so me and his daughter were spending a lot of time together and I was learning a lot, spending a lot of time in his spaces. Um, So there's like different levels of accessibility and different levels of involvement, but there's always like, some kind of connection or friendship that can come out of these books i mean marguerite de Ross is no longer alive but olivia my co-translator and i had like a hell of a time translating together so you know there's always the beautiful things that can come out of translating
0: yeah yeah one thing that you just mentioned now that i found very interesting when we were first talking was um the sampling process. Like I'm very curious about like how you identify projects first that you're interested in and then the process of like actually landing them. Like I I don't think people realize that there's like, for some projects anyway, this like try out that you have to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) So I mean, there's two different ways to come to a project or I guess multiple ways, but two that I'm most familiar with, which is I will find a book somewhere And I will translate a sample, and I will pitch it, and sometimes my pitch will be accepted right away. Sometimes it'll take me years uh, to get it accepted somewhere, either because, you know, I I mean, a lot of that is that publishers take a long time to get back to you. It takes a long time to to find the spare unpaid labor time to translate the sample and edit it and all of these things and come up with a pitch. You're applying for grants, you know, all of these things. and I I, th- I feel like people are gonna think I'm insane if I say this out loud, but- well, so do. many of <laughs> A lot of the books that I've pitched, like my, I have pitched them. I have found them. I have spent time translating samples and sending them around. It's like a an instinct thing. We're like, there was, the last time I was in France was in 2019. I was in RL at of Translators Residency. And I walked into this bookstore, I walked into a couple of bookstores and I kept seeing, or no, I walked into one specific bookstore. I kept seeing this like little book and every time I'd go into this bookstore, I'd kind of give this book a look and I would be kind of interested in it. But the French don't put descriptions on the backs of their books. They don't, they like put a quote on the back and then there's no information. And you're like, what the fuck is this book about? But I just had this like feeling And every time I walked into that store, I would like pick up the book and read a couple pages. And finally, one day I bought it and I read the whole thing on my flight back home. And it was this book called Sansa about men disappearing from the world. And it was like, oh my God, this book is so good. I'm so excited about this. I'm going to pitch it. It took me forever to finally do a pitch and to send it around. And it was just announced that Unnamed is going to be doing it in 2022 or 2023. I don't know. I don't know. Um, And like that has happened to me numerous times where I'll sort of like walk into a bookstore and something will catch my eye and I'll know nothing about it and I'll buy it and I'll take it home and I'll be like, fuck yeah, this book is great. And then I'll start pitching it. Um, The opposite has also happened where I'll like pick something up and then it'll really suck. Um, But less frequently or I'll sort of like decide in my head, I think I'm really gonna like this so I'm I'm gonna pitch it. And then as I'm translating to do the sample, I'll be like, yes, I was right. This is exactly what I want to be pitching. And then the other side of it is publishers will come to you and say, hi, we think you'd be really great for this project. Do you want to compete against a mysterious number of other translators <laughs> for it? And you'll, and they'll like, you know, or they won't say it in that way, but they'll, they'll say like, do you want to do a sample? And, you know, whatever. And then you're auditioning for it. And sometimes you're not competing. Um, sometimes they've come to you first, but often you're competing against people. You don't know how many people, you don't know who. And um, and then you find out you didn't get it. Uh, and, you know, then you you hear who else got it, whatever. And it's, it's kind of brutal. Um, I've heard other translators refer to them as beauty contests. Um, which sounds like way less cutthroat than competition or whatever. And I f- it feels like pretty cutthroat to me, but it is, it's also difficult to navigate because you're not sure. Okay. So should I translate the sample the way I think the publisher wants it? Or should I translate the sample the way that feels the most unique to me and makes me stand out? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to, guess like what you're supposed to do in those situations and I've lost a lot of those I've gotten some of them and it's never any less painful when you don't get them especially when like a publisher comes to you with a book and you're like whoa this book is amazing I really want this project and you get really excited and you know you do the sample and you send it to like five of your friends to read over for you and then you find out you don't get it and it's like you know, then suddenly you become very attached to a project that someone else is going to be translating.
0: Yeah. yeah. How how do you cope when you don't get it? What are your uh, What are your methods for rejection?
1: Alcohol. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. I I don't know. You know. You 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 focus on finding another project to pitch or to to focus your energy on. I think. You know, I lost a book recently that felt very close to my heart for like specific reasons and I was really really devastated and then I went and found a book that filled that kind of that checks that box for me um and that I actually liked even more and I'm now pitching that and so I think you know you you have to channel the disappointment into uh like making it happen for yourself in, in a different way
0: I thought you were going to say uh, you play bocce ball or something, you know, like you have uh, some healthy outdoor activity over at uh, Dexter Training Ground.
1: (laughs) Well, my bocce partner has left Providence for L.A. to go work at some other bookstore. Um, (laughs) No, I I wish I had some kind of healthy outdoor coping habits, but no, I just channel it into like a a rage-fueled, more work for myself.
0: Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so along those lines, how are things going at uh, Riff Raff? Uh, what, what's your stage at with reopening? And you guys, uh, or give it, tell us what Riff Raff is. I'm just assuming everyone in Los Angeles knows.
1: Uh, so Riff Raff is a bookstore and a bar based in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we opened in 2017, me and my co-owner, Tamara Barrish, And so this is our fourth year. Um, and it will be four years old in December. And I mean, we made it through the pandemic. So really, that's the most important thing. And I feel very grateful for that. I think they, they said at a certain point in the pandemic, there was one independent bookstore a week closing, which is crazy to think about. Um, so we have, we're very lucky that we have this big outdoor courtyard. And so last summer, we were doing an outdoor bookstore bar uh, that um, Mike was working at. And this summer, we're slowly reopening inside. So now people can go browse indoors and can order at the bar, but we're still having everybody mask. And I think we're gonna reopen our, we're gonna say, you know, you don't have to mask unless you're unvaccinated and you can sit and drink inside and all of these things as of two weeks from now, so the end of June. And um, that's much sooner than I expected. I thought we wouldn't be able to reopen inside till September. But the the mask mandate was lifted in Rhode Island on June 1st. And it's like overnight, everyone's ready. Everyone is good to go. I thought it would take much longer for people to be emotionally ready. Yeah. It has not.
0: (laughs) It it was the same thing out here. It's uh, June 17th, the day we're talking. But June 15th was when the mask mandate ended. And it was like chaos. Uh, Like bars slamming, all the restaurants full. I mean, in our store, like it's all indoors. And I wanna say like the first day, like most people were saying they're vaccinated and still were wearing masks. Like it was probably like 25% of the people coming in were wearing no masks, but out and about like the change is like very obvious, very quickly.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I kind of was worried because if you've, you've you know what riffraff looks like, our bar is sort of in the back. Mm-hmm it's not near the windows. And I was worried that people would be very kind of, oh, I only wanna be inside somewhere if there's lots of ventilation and the windows are wide open and blah, blah, blah. And um, no, (laughs) people are coming in like, oh, I have to wear my mask, oh, I can't sit inside. And that's, I'm much happier to have that problem that people are very ready for us to be open. And we're sort of like letting ourselves adjust and letting our employees adjust. As opposed to us being ready and no one else wanting right. to do it, right? So I'm, I feel good about where we're at. It's going to be very weird to have people inside again.
0: Um, yeah, and, and has, no, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say one update for you that uh, I I'm really bummed you're not here right now because I just got a ping pong table for now.
0: <laughs> Are you kidding? Like we're so it's like uh, outside in the courtyard
1: it's in the courtyard. I bring it out every day. We're open. I may or may not take some breaks to go play with various customers or the employees. And, um, yeah. How's
0: the competition level? Are you, uh, are you top of the ranks? How how are you? What's your record?
1: I mean, I never have enough time to play full games. Great Uh,
0: experience. Yeah.
1: One of our, our new employees, Jayon, and I played recently, and she was pretty good. So I'd, I'm curious to play a real game with her, maybe like at the end of a shift one day. But um, I did wheel out the table yesterday outside of business hours because a friend of mine wanted to play, absolutely destroyed him, humiliated the guy. So Oh, yeah.
0: What was the score? You, you mercy rule him? Uh,
1: we played a couple times to 11, a couple times to 21, and I beat him by at least five points every time. Yeah. I'm just saying. you got to come back and challenge me.
0: Yeah. I, ping pong's not really my game, but, you know, I'll bring my all. I feel like I could still – I think I'm undefeated against you in bocce, so maybe if you beat me down in uh, ping pong, we could take it to the courts and, you know, I could teach you another lesson over there.
1: Okay. First of all, I think out of our maybe 20 games of bocce, I think I've won once. Yeah, so you yeah. can't say undefeated
0: okay <laughs> whatever you say it you're the, you're guest. I'm the host. yeah yeah you're right you won yeah I'm
1: a guest on this podcast don't dunk on me <laughs> <laughs>
0: um uh you also started I wanted to bring up your other pandemic project um Trove uh will you tell people what that's about I think it's a very cool thing and a great resource for curious readers
1: So Trove is a little newsletter that I started with Christina Rodriguez, who's now the the marketing director at a public space books and formerly at Deep Mellon Bookstore. And Christina and I both kind of were feeling a lot of, you know, as booksellers, I mean you know this too, there's this pressure to constantly be reading what's coming out, what's on the new lists, all that stuff. And I felt very lacking in my backlist books that i you know i just don't ever take the time to be very intentional about reading stuff from the past because there's so much pressure as a bookseller to have read the things on your tables on like the new table and so we decided to do this newsletter where in each newsletter we each do two little blurbs for backlist books that we really like backlist meaning anything published two years ago or more and then there's always this lost treasure which is kind of corny but it was because we had so many books we wanted to talk about that are out of print and we felt we should still be able to talk about them just because they're out of print doesn't mean it's not worth talking about them so it's sort of specifying this book's going to be really hard to find if that's going to bum you out don't read this um but i still want to be able to kind of celebrate some books that have meant a lot to me even if you can't go buy them right now and um are we were a little bit on hiatus, we missed May, because as with everything I do, I realized that I had turned the one thing I had that wasn't work related into work. And, you know, this like reading backless books was like the one thing I had that didn't feel like it directly translated to work or a deadline or anything. And then suddenly we were like, whoa, this is, you know, not as pleasant anymore like we're feeling a lot of stress so now we're sort of letting ourselves used to be monthly now it's you know bi-monthly it's going to be a sporadic newsletter which I feel good about because I think the more you can resist uh deadlines and turning your hobbies into work the better so it will we will send one out very soon but we did miss May
0: (laughs) That's good advice. Uh, And I'll ask you just one more question, a good one to wrap up on for a bookseller, which is uh, what have you been reading and liking liking lately?
1: So I really liked the new Rachel Cusk book, uh, Second Second Place, Place, which I had tried to read Rachel Cusk before and not been able to kind of get into her prose.
0: You didn't like that outline stuff, That, that trilogy?
1: I couldn't get, I think I should try again but it just didn't grab me and I have a really hard time if something doesn't grab me uh, motivating myself to keep going. And, but I, I could not believe how much I liked second place. It was, I was like underlining every couple pages and there were just some passages that I found unbelievably beautiful. Um, so highly recommend that. And I'm I'm trying to think of a friend of mine um, named Jess McHugh had a nonfiction book come out a couple of weeks ago called *Americanon*, which um, is a, a history of American bestsellers in twelve books. So she takes a, a she examines the twelve best-selling. Books published in America of all time, and uh, books that like continue to be very relevant and that people are still buying and still reading, and kind of looks at what it's what they say about our culture and about America and what maybe they leave out and some of the issues with them and some of the issues with framing American culture around these books, and that's really interesting. Um, I also really like. Uh, I'm trying. To, I'm like visualizing what's on the riffraff front table uh there's a book called eat eat the the mouth that Feeds." oh yeah
0: yeah we did an event with that writer um eat the mouth that feeds you i think it's called yeah
1: eat the mouth that feeds you by caribbean fragosa apologies if i'm mispronouncing that uh and that's from city lights and i thought that was a book of short stories and i thought that was really really wonderful
0: awesome well thank you for taking the time emma Today's guest uh, here on the Handsell podcast was Emma Ramadan. She was discussing her translation of In Concrete by Angaretta. You can order a copy of that or any of the others we mentioned today at skylightbooks.com or swing by and find them in store. Thank you everyone for listening. Have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.
0: I see.